up everyone? This is Darius Kalbarczyk, co-founder of NG Poland, JS Poland, Angular Master of Dev and the Workshop Fest of Dev. Welcome back to Angular Master Podcast. Today we've got a special guest from Zurich, Switzerland, passionate developer who builds, teaches, writes and speaks about Angular and NGRX. Ladies and gentlemen, Thomas Trier. Hi, Thomas. How are you? Great. Thank you, Darish. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. For those who don't know you yet, please tell us about yourself and what do you do. So my name is Thomas Trajan and I speak, write, build, teach and everything which has to do with like Angular and GRX with main focus on the enterprises. So basically writing Angular blog. Uh, now we started also like another podcast uh, doing talks about Angular contracting with various enterprises, mostly with Switzerland, but also worldwide. And like our latest initiative was creation of like angularexperts.io, where we are offering all this kind of stuff. What's the name of the podcast? It's called Angular Experts Podcast. So very straightforward, very simple, just follows exactly the name of the website. And this initiative is together with another fellow Angular GD uh, called uh, Kevin Kreutzer. How did you start your adventure in programming? Right, so we are really going from the from the beginning. I like that. So, like, so the it was a bit funny story because when I first went to university, I actually couldn't do it. So I kind of dropped out, like after a year, because like the programming in like C and C plus plus was a bit too much for me at that time. But then I started doing like some graphic design and then slowly like morphed into web design and like some simple websites and some web applications with PHP and slowly kind of I found my way back to programming, but mostly as a self-taught. Why did you choose Angular? I always was close to front end because I started websites and I always enjoyed this very quick feedback loop when you basically change any line of code and you kind of see it in action on like the refresh of the browser or even refreshes automatically, right? So I always liked front-end and of course, like just compared to like very basic websites, you eventually want to add some kind of functionality. And even if you start like with stuff like PHP, then the whole environment moved on into direction of front-end frameworks and libraries. And at that time, like the one thing which I discovered was AngularJS. I think it was like around version like one, one or one one or something like that and this for me was kind of like a revolutionary because it was this new approach of doing things and it allowed me to be even more efficient and more structured so that was kind of like in the beginning what do you think of angular's latest features oh right so i mean that journey is crazy right because like angular js that was around year 2013 if i am correct and now we are 2023 so that's kind of like 10 years later and like angular in some form still exists and we could even say like it's the best form of angular ever right so like with all the lessons learned with the improvements to the front-end landscape with all these new cool apis the browser give us so probably most of us are now aware that there is quite some new development going on in the angular right like as you mentioned 
like a new latest features. So most likely what you have in mind is uh, introduction of the standalone components or like the signals as a new reactivity primitive. The standalone components, basically the main promise of standalone components, at least the way I understand it, is to reduce the amount of like boilerplate we need to kind of provide when writing or authoring components, but even more important uh, to cut down on the learning curve for the newcomers into the front-end development, and especially with Angular, where I fully understand and appreciate that approach because it is true that with Angular, if you are just getting started and maybe you don't have like a software engineering background, it could be like a bit overwhelming. And if you compare it, like with nowadays, if you open something like a Stack Blitz and you where you get like this running workspace in your browser immediately and you see this Angular starter, it is now just one file with the inline component, one single component and like bootstrap application and it just works and you see everything nicely together. So definitely I see this as a benef beneficial thing for for this, from this point of view. And, um, but if we want to get like more in depth on that and like with more serious applications, like in enterprise environments, or if you are developing some kind of product, then it's still beneficial. But the way it was delivered in this form today, there is definitely some kind of trade-off going on still. Maybe this will change in the near future where it's purely beneficial, but as of right now, I would say there is still some kind of trade-off. So let's imagine a situation. We have a, like, let's say, existing application, and most likely we separated the logic into, like, multiple lazy-loaded features, which is, like, a good uh, engineering practice to separate it to make it more maintainable. There are many advantages with that. And now, let's say we already have couple of those lazy features and we look at the first of those lazy feature A or like dashboard or something like this. Usually such a feature would consist of multiple components which uh, are strictly related to that kind of business functionality. So if we speak about the dashboard, maybe we have like the dashboard container and some dashboard items of various types. Maybe then we have a couple of editors to edit those dashboards or to edit those dashboard items. Maybe we have some kind of sorting container to be able to like drag and drop sort them, all this kind of stuff, which is pretty tightly related and coupled to this kind of business function. So now in the like the old school, even though it's not that long time ago world, we would uh, create such a lazy feature as like the entry point would be like the lazy loaded feature module. So we would have something like a dashboard module, right? And the dashboard module would then manage this kind of like a template context for all these components, if we have these 15 different components which we are using them, uh, about what they can use in their templates with its imports. So that means if we want to use stuff like uh, ng, ng4, we import the common module. If we want to use something like a material card or material button, we would import like the those modules, right? And now those things would be available in the template of every single of those components. So we would kind of manage like one list of those template dependencies and we could benefit from it in 15 components. Now, if we wanted to rewrite this feature uh, with the standalone components, basically the module is gone, which, yeah, that's kind of the whole point. So we are saving something. We don't have a module anymore. And maybe we just lazy load the list of those like lazy routes or maybe we have like a core or sorry, not core, the root 
less loaded component of that feature. But now comes the change. So instead of one list of imports for the all the templates, now every single component needs to manage the list of imports of what it uses in its own template, right? And um, of course, you could say that like this is kind of good because this allows us to then extract that component easier and make it reusable. But this is why we started with that premise that those components are pretty tightly coupled on that like business logic level. So the likelihood of that is relatively low, right? So now we, we are in a situation where this kind of refactor would basically lead to quite some effort for only a minimal benefit as of like right now, right? So, and we can speak a little bit later about how that might change in the future where it will be like just objectively always better. So that would be like this kind of trade-off where if you write something new, of course do it because you are future-proof. If you have something existing, you might want to wait because you are not getting that much extra of it right now. But of course, if you have nothing else to do, then please go and do it, right? But now, on the other hand, we can speak about the situation where it's kind of like always good already today, when it's objectively better like already today, where like the typical example could be if we have like a one big shared module with a lot of stuff in it. Well, usually it's better to take it apart. And that's why people started introducing patterns like a single component uh, Angular module or SCAM where they basically took apart shared module into like, let's say 30 tiny little shared modules, which every single of those only managed one component or directive or a pipe. And then of course, uh, the standalone represents a great win because you reduce the boilerplate dramatically if you are migrating from that single component uh, Angular module to standalone, or even if you want to take apart your already existing a huge shared module, then definitely it becomes much easier and better, like you will have a better developer experience if you do it with a standalone. So what I mentioned earlier was that like now, even though there is this definite trade-off and it depends on your current circumstance, if you want to do it immediately, it most likely will change in the future, but it will be always objectively better. So let's explore that a little bit. So one of the big things which will impact this is that uh, the first class support for the standalone from the point of view of Angular schematics should be available in version 16 or maybe like one after that or in some like feature release, but it should land. And that would be very important because currently we can, we do have a schematics to like generate the standalone component itself, but um, there are still some schematics missing uh, to be like feature complete. So for example, if you want to generate a new lazy loaded feature, it is still only possible with schematics to do it with the modules, but I would really love to be able to do that uh, for the standalone, right? So that I generate new standalone lazy loaded feature and maybe edit roots, root of that feature will be like the list of routes, or maybe there will be like a flag to have the root standalone component, whatever have you because uh, I think that's also like a very important part of that to have this workflow where you can consistently generate that application skeleton across multiple applications, a larger organization that it's not always done slightly differently with slightly different naming. So that's like one big thing, but then to be like objectively better. So basically from 
the limited information I have available at the moment, it looks like that uh, as Angular team explores uh, uh, various other ways to improve the build process of the Angular CLI, that one of the roadblocks on the journey to make it better is that currently Angular has a very hard time with the single file compilation. And that's exactly because before standalone components, the, the, the template context for the component was managed in another file in the module file, right? The module determined what the component can use in its template. So once we would have an application which only has standalone components, and by definition, every standalone component manages its own template dependencies of what it imports, what it can use in a template, then this should enable Angular team to enable this kind of tooling. Now I'm not completely clear on the details if it's like some special mode of ES build or like a VT or whatever exactly it is. But the promise of that was that if this happens, the build speed and rebuild speed, especially in the dev mode, can benefit a lot. So we would get from like, I don't know, second and a half to something like 100 milliseconds, right? And if that would be the case, and the standalone components would be the only way to get there, then you can say, okay, this is always worth it. Because who would not want to have that like five, 10 times faster build speeds, right? So then like you benefit from it on every single save in your editor, every single day you spend developing your Angular application. So I think then you could say, okay, now even for the already existing features, it is really worth it to uh, redo this. And it's really worth to manage this template context because we are getting this objective benefit. So it would be also easier to like sell it to like your product owner or something like that if you work in a huge organization. And even one more thing. So <laughs> with the standalone, right, we we know we have to manage that template context, what is used in the template. And there is this list of imports. So previously, that list of imports was in module. Now there is in a component. And there was this very cool presentation by Paul Kozlovsky, the member of the Angular core team at the NGCOF 2022, where at the one of the last of the slides, he's shown that what they realized is that this list of imports on the standalone component is basically almost the same as the list of imports on the TypeScript file itself, which holds that component. So that's also something which maybe can happen in the future is that we would not need to duplicate that list manually and manage it, like to remove stuff if we don't use it anymore. And even better that maybe the, the editor and especially the Angular language service could do this automatically. And that would be like a pure win because then you don't have to manage it at all, right? So that's definitely better than with the modules where module has no way of knowing that, like what's used in a component, a template, in another file, but the component actually can. So if those two things would be introduced, then like you are like, okay, the standalone components are like the best thing that ever happened to Angular. So I'm really looking forward to this kind of future. I hope this will and can and will happen like relatively soon but yeah i don't know i just hope based on that information and please check out that talk by powell it's really cool will signals make rxjs obsolete 
Yeah, that's a relatively common question, especially on like the social media and like in the comments of the various YouTube videos and stuff like that. And I would say also for like a good reason, because of course, like on the first look, like they are solving more or less exactly the same challenge in like Angular applications, and that is to manage some kind of state, right? So if we just don't have it in the properties on our components, then we have it like in some RxJS stream, maybe it's like some behavior subject pattern or like with the NGRX store and stuff like that. So of course now with the with the introduction of the signals, then comes up the question. So once we have a signals, that means we would like, do we need to rewrite all this logic or we will not need RxJS anymore? What is going on? Well, as it turns out, there are quite some differences between the two and both are optimized for the different use case or a different part of that overall state management use case. So as a general rule of thumb, you could say that you would like to use signals for your synchronous state and then switch to RxJS whenever you want to do some kind of more advanced uh, asynchronous handling or orchestration. And um, we will then provide also a couple of really cool examples for that. But uh, first, let's focus on what the signals will be like really good at, right? So with the signals, I mean, when, whenever we had some kind of components and we needed some kind of derived state, in practice, what I've seen was that people either like streamified that logic in their components. So then when you had some couple of inputs and you need some derived state, you basically streamified all those inputs with either setters or engine changes. And then you create like some derived streams with like combined latest and this thing until changed. And then you mapped it to something, right? And this works, but it's also a bit complicated for what it is. And especially if you are like getting those inputs, like at some like it's kind of synchronous once you get that input, right? Just please right now, like get me a derived state. So another option would have been to like do it in engine changes, which works for smaller cases, but then it's kind of hard to like track and understand what's going on once that statement gets really low. And plus it's not so type safe because like simple changes is just like a dictionary. So you don't really get the proper type safety. Now this would represent like a really epic uh, use case for a signal. First of all, there seems to be like an API coming where the inputs of the Angular components are like signal based. So then they of course can be mixed and matched within the computed API of the signals where we can use multiple signals to get a computed uh, a derived state. So that would make the engine changes redundant and it would be much easier to understand and track compared to RxJS. And it would not turn that whole thing like asynchronous. But then, of course, comes this other requirement that sometimes you need to perform something asynchronous. And of course, even with the signals, it would be possible you can just use like this effect API, and then you can fire a backend request inside of your effect. And once you get the response, you update your signal or just set a new value. That's going to work. But uh, the, always the main problem with the asynchronous stuff is when you perform more than one a synchronous operation at like relatively same time or as a part of the same requirement. So, and the most 
typical iconic example is something like a type ahead search, right? So as you are typing in an input, you are kind of searching and you are delivering the answers. And then you end up in a situation with more than one requests being active at the same time. And this is like a very notorious example because based on the network conditions and the server conditions and how it's handled, you might end up in a race condition where you don't get the last response as a last one. So it would show basically outdated response response on the screen, right? And those are exactly the cases which where the RxJ shines the most when you can handle multiple of those calls together with stuff like switch map, merge map, call card map, and exhaust map, or you can like buffer them or whatever have you, right? Handling together. So and then you would probably want to have RxJs. Well, and now, okay, signals and RxJs, different API, how do we get out of this? Well, as it turns out, there is going to be, or there is already a pull request on the Angular repo, which showcases the interoperability, interoperability, I cannot pronounce that perfectly, layer between the the, the RxJs and the signals with stuff like, I think it's like um, uh, from signal, or, or to observable, I, like doesn't really matter what exactly the function array will be, but basically it allows you to convert signal into observable and to convert observable into a signal, right? So, and then you can imagine that, okay, we have this case and we have this input and this, like, I mean, input in the, in the HTML where we actually type, and then we listen to those changes as a signal, and then we can convert that signal of that current input value of, in that HTML where we type, into an observable stream, like from signal, whatever. And then we are in the stream, in the RxJS land, so we can use our favorite switch map to only get the latest response in a correct order. And once we do that, well, we perform the request, of course, inside of that switch map, maybe we map to like some response, so we unwrap the data, maybe we catch the error. And then once we are ready, we can convert that stream back into signal and just consume it in the template like nothing happened. So, and the huge benefit of this is that we do not need to manage subscription because whenever we basically um, change this or like transform uh, the observable into the signal with that helper function, it will subscribe and set up unsubscription behind the scene for us. So this happens automatically. So now, as you can see, we have like this full end-to-end integration. We start in a template, we have those changes as a signal. We transform it into observable stream only when necessary, because this is this kind of use case. Use that switch map magic to get the best result without needing to track some IDs on the side and sort them and whatever have you. And then we come back into signal land, so we just consume that value as if nothing happened in the Angular component. So I think this is a really cool example of why it's not signals or RxJs, but it's actually both, and both for the part which they are like the most suited for. You're listening, Angular Master Podcast. Listen, code, repeat. Everything you need to know to become an Angular super developer. Plain signals versus something like a signal store. That's a, another very good point because um, I mean, signals, I mean, they are not out yet, right? So it's the new thing and we'll need to figure out. And I think the story will go similarly like 
with what happened with Irish jazz when the first time, like the Angular 2 at the time was released, right? It's this new shiny thing. And then of course people need to experiment and try out that APIs and try various patterns because this behaves now differently. So we need to like uncover by experimenting what would be the best way to solve typical use cases using signals, how to organize and structure the signals-based codes to fulfill those most common requirements in a way which is easy to understand, maintain, test, and all this kind of stuff. So what I expect is that there is going to be like a period of experimentation where we gonna try this out. Most likely there will be also different new signals-based uh, state management solution popping up like maybe on monthly basis, because of course we need to figure out. And over time, as the those APIs evolve, we will see like, okay, this seems to be kind of like the best practice. This is easy to maintain, like the correct level of the boilerplate where it's not too magical, but also not writing too much code, right? This also happened like I think with RxJS and there were like so many various model libraries like back in 2016, 17. And now we end up in a situation where there is just a couple of choices. I mean, like if we look back on the evolution of RxJS, so then you have like the NGRX, maybe NGRX component store, maybe NGXS or stuff like RX Angular, right? So it kind of converge. Now, I expect that similar story will happen with the signals, but there is one little twist to it, which is that those established RxJS based state management libraries already exist and they figure out many things out. So most likely, they are going to provide a signal-based APIs. So, and to get back to that initial point, why is this important is that I don't personally like to write pure RxJS-based logic. I think it's uh, very easy to shoot yourself in a foot. I think it's very hard to structure it in a way which is clean. So that's why I always tend to go for like a prepackaged solution, like for example, NGRX full-blown, or if it's something smaller than something like NGRX component store, because then I know, okay, this is the structure. Every piece of logic has its place, update state in the reducer, you know, perform side effects in the effect. So it's kind of obvious which part of logic belongs where. So it's much um, easier to do things right when you have like this predefined approach where everything is clear from start. So I think again, the same thing will happen with signals. So you start with signals which just like are ad hoc in some services and stuff like that. But over time, there will be like these best practices and the structure where pe people will start using signals in this like tamed, predefined, prepackaged version, which will be better. Now, maybe compared to RxJS, like because signals are also very useful in like just purely in the view components to define some derived states, they're most likely they will still be used like in the plain version. But as an overall state management solution, I would most likely expect that something like NGRX signal store will be the winner, right? Just based on the current size of the community. But you never know. New options and their impact on standardized code bases. So exactly. So so this is very related to what we just discussed, right? Because the expectation is that because we have all these new options of doing things, there will be this transitory period where, where people need to try out stuff. So probably the code bases will get more diverse, which is not necessarily a problem when you work on your like product in your company, 
or like one-off projects. But of course, uh, in like environments with many applications in like large organizations, usually benefit from having stuff standardized so you can move developers from one project to another without being lost, right? So I think there's going to be impact. And exactly like if we get more schematics from Angular team, right, just to get like the, this is the canonical version of how to do standalone and how to do the standalone lazy features. That's going to be very beneficial. Same for like the state management. For sure, people are going to experiment, which is a good thing to optimize the APIs. But then I would expect that, yeah, if we have something like NGRX signal store, and I mean, NGRX also comes with schematics, right? To like give you a state feature. So it will give you the signals based state feature or maybe signals based component store, whatever have you. And doesn't need to be NGRX, right? Can be RX, Angular, whoever. It doesn't really matter who it is, but it's one of those standardized structured approaches. So yeah, so I expect there is going to be this transitory period, but I hope we will, and I I strongly believe that we will settle in like that standardized world after. General single project product development versus enterprise. So that's again, very related, right? Because um, it's very important. Like whenever people ask me about like, you know, what's the best way to do Angular or what should I do like in my project or like, how would you solve this so, uh, like this kind of requirement or how would you approach this question? Then like the first question always from my side is like, what are you working on, right? Because the, the answer will be strongly dependent on that. So of course there is completely different set of like requirements if you work on like one-off project, let's say you are building some kind of product, then I would be like all for like, please introduce your like cute little abstractions, which save you a couple of keystrokes where you prepackage some things which you use repeatedly in your application, because you will know it, like the team is relatively small, the team is relatively stable, so they know those APIs. And then also if you need to like migrate to a new version and something breaks, it's still kind of much more manageable because everybody is kind of on the same page. Now, if I am in another environment with like a lot of teams, a lot of uh, uh, applications and libraries, then I would suggest complete opposite. Like, please do not introduce any kind of abstraction. Like just use whatever, like the correct level of abstraction is, let's say, Angular and your state management library of choice, like NGRX. So please do not introduce some kind of, you know, like your, like your own APIs, because there is like a big difference between developing application as an application developer and developing framework as a framework developer. And this, the, the, like the line between those kind of gets blurry sometimes where you like work on an application, but you're kind of developing your own mini framework in that application workspace to make some stuff simpler. And again, if it's like your product or one of application, this can be cool, but if it's large organization where next day you have to work on something else or somebody else has to work on your stuff, then maybe it's not so cool that, that they have to like discover like or rediscover some new prepackaged way of doing things which only exists there and the documentation is a bit outdated because then after that, like you just wanted to ship features so you didn't keep it up to date and stuff like that, right? So I think this is like a like a very, very important distinction to make. And like, I would encourage uh, every developer to think like, 
uh, when in whatever capacity they work on whatever project, like if it's more like application development or if there is some space for being like a framework developer. But just to be aware of that and try to optimize it for the organization they work in to deliver the most possible value in that environment, which might go against the personal preference of focus on one or the other, right? But that's why we are professionals. What about NGRX as an universal API for any business feature? Yeah, so this was one thing which uh, is like this idea I'm kind of like still try to put nicely together before I create some more content about it, but it came to me like from experience of working on yeah various things like and again especially because I work on my own product where I'm like the only developer let's say where I am full freedom but at the same time like in a large enterprise environment um, it turns out that uh, when we have multiple features built by multiple teams the API of course will be different because they will use different approach. Maybe sometimes they have services, which is like methods you call. Sometimes they may be, you know, exposed the data as a property. Sometimes they may be exposed data as a function call. So you call some function, get me this or that, and you get that synchronously. Maybe sometimes they expose data as a observable stream. So it will be push-based, right? So with stream then push-based, if method then pull-based, you have to ask for the data. Maybe sometimes they have some form of caching going on. So there could be so many different ways to have that. Now, let's just imagine an ideal world where the whole organization has like perfect NGRX. Of course, could be other, right? It doesn't really matter which one it is. It's just like one. And now imagine that like whatever feature you want to use from other team, which deals with different part of business domain, you know, when you use that library or whatever have you, that the API you already know, because the API, let's say with NGRX would be whatever I want to read, I'm going to get a selector and I already understand what selector is that like it pushes the stuff. It's observable stream probably is memoized. Maybe you can have some convention that it's only when like this thing on uh, until changed or something like that. And I also know that whenever I need to perform any kind of like change in that feature, that it has its list of public actions, which I can dispatch, and uh, and uh, and that's it, right? So, how to say? So basically, if you had this kind of like universal adoption of technology like NGRX, for example, then you would realize that yeah, you can just use everything, and there won't be any clashes on the API level. So you would not have to like write some kind of strange integration between one feature which is pull-based and one feature which is push-based, and you could just nicely consume them together. So I have this one example which I really like from one of the code bases I was working on. So let's say you have like uh, Interceptor which uh, needs to set various things into the HTTP headers before you can make the request. And because the environment is complicated, it's like four different things. It's like the API key and it's like some authentication token and like which user and whatever and some something more, right? And now those were like actually different libraries and they had these different APIs. And then what happens is that this logic to integrate this and like to deal with all this timing that something is synchronous, something is asynchronous, something has a always some value, something 
doesn't have value, right? Or you have to wait for a value. There is quite some things how it can be brittle and also special when they change. Now, we did like a small POC where we rewrote all these features like with NGRX. And then basically to have that interceptor, we introduced like a selector next to that interceptor, which just used the selectors exposed by those features, combined that stuff, set it, and that was it, right? So it became basically trivial to have this feature. We didn't even need like almost no implementation to make that interceptor work. So that was like one of those examples when I saw like, okay, wow, like if I would know that everything which is available has this API, which is basically always the same and it's only two things, read or write, then like that would make my life and life of everybody else much easier. So I'm still like not completely clear on how I want to like create some content around that, but uh, I think there are like sometimes these things when people use stuff, but may not realize what are the actual implication of that. And maybe I have like one more example for it, which was also like a big uh, realization for me. And I've wrote about it in the past. It's like, it's again with NGRX because I kind of like it and have very good experience with it. So it's all stream-based, right? But at the same time, you almost never need to write RxJS-based code. It's like, how is that possible, right? So there's like the genius of that API design that even though everything is pushed and stream-based, uh, selector, plain function, no Angular, no RxJS, the easiest thing to test, right? Reducer, plain function, no Angular, no RxJS, action, data object, store, just data structure. So. So that's kind of a cool thing, though, that like the only place where you actually have to write RxJS is only in the effect. So that's kind of like 20% of the whole API. And it's only very tame streams, which are small and chunked into like small pieces. So like this, this kind of realizations. Yeah. What about NX as a DSL for building spas? Right. So that's another cool one, which also is kind of like a work in progress. So this all also came together as like this idea that like also myself, right? When, when writing Angular application, even though let's say you already use schematics, so you have some kind of standardization. So you like have these lazy features and you may have some architecture that you have shared folder with the standalone shared components and you have some core maybe with like a eager layout and some like a global useful service and stuff like that. It's still kind of ad hoc and you can still structure it in like in relatively random ways and sometimes you like couple the logic in your components sometimes it's in services and stuff like that and then when we started experimenting with Enix, which like the it has many many huge benefits but one of those very cool ones is that it makes writing of new angular schematics or that it's called workspace generators very easy because you don't have to create like a separate library, but you just can write them inline in that workspace and they will just run. So this brought us to the idea that um, because it made it cheap that we could experiment it, that what if a front-end application was like not ad hoc, but it could only consist of like a finite amount of things which are always the same and only composition of those things. So, and that they will be very strongly defined and nothing else. Because 
And again, you can always find like exception to the rule, right? But most of the applications. So it's kind of like a domain specific language to build front-end applications because what we realized is that what we actually need is just like, uh, you know, you have a lazy feature, you have like a reusable component, you have a state module, like let's say with NGRX, then you have like Angular-based utils where you have dependency injection and like uh, services. Then you have TypeScript-based utils, which is even without that. And maybe you have like a model-based library where you define interfaces and constants and enums and stuff like that. And then also we had like this eager feature, which is like a pattern which brings stuff together. And so we had maybe like eight or nine things. And we realized that we can express express like any of those um, enterprise CRUD applications just with that. And again, that's like a ne next level of standardization where if you would implement something like this in your organization, it's even more standardized. People are even more feeling like at home from the first moment and you can automate even more of like the development process where you just generate those things and compose them and it's always the same and it follows the same naming because it's done with the same schematics. And then of course, if you follow that in NX, you can also enforce very strong rules about who is allowed to import who. So that way you can automate like a clean architecture and one-way dependency graph and all this kind of stuff. So it proved very strongly beneficial. And we actually have like a open source version of that on AngularExperts.io, if you go to products, it's called Enix plugin, which implements this and gives you these schematics, which gives you like this DSL. And again, nothing is set in stone and maybe it's not a good fit for your application, but it's definitely something which you can explore or inspire yourself and change it to suit your needs. Because there we have like three levels of like the domains, which like makes sense in that environment, but maybe it's too much for your environment. So, but this is definitely something which can be explored because I think like we, it's kind of like the less decisions we need to make, the more we can focus on the actual like delivering of value. So for me, it's kind of similar, like code formatting, just like on 10 levels higher of abstraction. AI tooling, how it benefits from standardized code bases and productivity? Right. So I think that's naturally flows to that because as you can see, like I'm a big fan of like having everything like the same. And uh, of course, most likely everybody listening to this is aware that times are changing a little bit and we have this new tooling available. So I have been using like GitHub Copilot since or like for more than half a year now, I think. So since beta. And I have to say, like, I really do feel if, you know, sometimes it like locks out in the editor and it's not there. It's like, oh, where are my code completions? Like what's, what's going on? Right. So I think those things are pretty related because this kind of tooling can be extremely powerful. Like, or, okay, before we move on to the standardized parts, like so the way I like to explain this is it's like, everybody knows with TypeScript, like how cool is to have code completion. If my service has 10 methods and I do service dot and first character, and I see like the list of possible methods based, subfilter based on what I've written, right? And it's cool because why should I type fast and make, I, I'm very bad at typing. Like I made billions of typos. I'm just very bad. I have like a keyboard dyslexia, whatever, right? So like why type or why type fast if I don't have to type at all, right? So, so and everybody knows this like from experience if they use TypeScript. So if we are writing Angular. So now 
with the co-pilot is like this, but like insanely better because then let's say I was writing like, uh, like code in a component where like, if I click on a button, I dispatch an NGRX action. And then I added like some new action where I wanted to do like, if this is set, then is this action or is that action? So then I then go to that actions file and I start writing that action. And like after a couple of characters, it kind of knows and gives me the whole action. And then I come back to that component file. So it's a different file. And I add that flag, which is has a word, which also is using that action. And it, if I start writing if, it will give me that whole code block, if this page this, else this page that. So contextually, it knows what's going on. So I don't have to write anything. And I have this uh, very clean, explicit code where I'm like completely like clear on what's going on, no match, right? So that's why I think like, especially because we have now this AI tooling, which can be very powerful and like, let us, you know, think about what we want to implement instead of like typing. I do think like that it benefits from having clean, repeated, standardized uh, patterns within the code base as it learns, right? And maybe it proves that it's like so powerful that you can have 10 different patterns in your code base and it will correctly use the correct pattern at the correct place to be consistent. Maybe that will be the case, but for sure it would have easier job and it would do it correctly earlier if you only had one pattern in your code base. So it would like be able to generate that code as you type or give you those suggestions perfectly based on that. And that, I mean, like, I love it. I feel like I'm so much more proactive. So yeah, and it's it's not like, you know, like I don't need to sit there and it will do the whole thing. It's more like it's just 10 inks better code completion and it's kind of obvious what's going to be there, but I'm still in control. I still know what kind of feature I want to add and I just, it removes that annoying part where like, that's another thing which I like to speak about. It's like, because I'm like working with the latter organization, but also like on the product, then I'm like, sometimes I don't necessarily enjoy writing that feature. I more enjoy like figuring out the feature, what would make sense for that product. But then like, I still have to do it. I still have to sit there three hours and put it all down and create those actions. And then you can say like, yeah, if you had like a library, which is like less boilerplate, I would still need to do it even with less boilerplate. It still would be annoying. So now if it's like, okay, I figure it out and this will help me get there five times faster. Well, I love that because it's like, I don't necessarily enjoy like actually typing the code anymore that much. Maybe in the past I did more. But now I'm like, okay, I want this thing working and this gets me there faster. Yeah, definitely, definitely true. What about chat GPT? Right. So that one is at least currently not as integrated in the like IDs or editors out of the box. I do use it as a part of my workflow because I mean, there is just so many APIs, right? So if I work on Angular, maybe I get bit rusty on the Node.js and then I have to work on some CLI tool. And then I'm like, okay, I could, in the past I would start Googling, okay, how do I ensure that like this directory exists? And if not, then like I create it, right? And then I would check the API or maybe there will be like a stack overflow or stuff like that. But I'm like, okay, check chat GPT, please do this or that, right? Or like integrate this or that. Then, Maybe even Copilot could do it based on like a comment in the 
workspace, but then I had a bit like worse experience. But the chat GPT can give you this kind of stuff like immediately, right? So then it's more like, because I have it opened already in the browser, then instead of Googling, it's just faster to like write that query there and get the code immediately. So I don't have to search in the list of like the search results, I guess. So that's like, it removes like one level of friction for me. And yesterday, just yesterday, I used it to write uh, unit tests for a feature where I was too lazy to write them initially. And now I was like fixing a small bug and adding like, it was like kind of like a date parser to like parse another of like those predefined formats, which they wanted that organization, very specific format, whatever. I was like, okay, like I actually didn't test that when I first like merged that PR. So let's try this out. And then I like pasted like into chat GPT, like, please write, uh, I try to be polite with chat GPT, you know, like for the future, like, please <laughs> write me a unit test for this and like, um, bundled test like for the long and short uh, year format per like it block and stuff like that and it did it it actually did it then i just had to like fix a couple of small things but again like it saved me time right so i could just instead of doing it so that's kind of cool and you know there is going to be this uh github copilot x soon and i uh, the way i understand it it should like integrate this like it either is chat GPT or integrate chat GPT like stuff or API behind the scenes in a copilot in the ID seamlessly. So I am really looking forward to that. Yeah, it should be like a GPT four. Right. So, yeah. Right. So. Right. So if if you like there you should be able to like basically write prompts directly in your editor. So and also with the context of what's going on in the editor. So you already have the context, so you don't have to describe it, or just select like a code block and write prompt for that code block. So yeah, that sounds like something I will enjoy doing. Yeah. Exactly. And again, I don't think like maybe, you know, in, maybe soon it gets so smart that like it will actually like you just say like, okay, write me now a new settings feature which like manages these five settings and it will generate like the screen and the UI and the back, maybe. And maybe then, yeah, then I'm useless and I go to farm potatoes, that's fine. But uh, before that, I will really enjoy all that productivity. Can you say a few words about your Omniboard app? That's also like just related to our content. It's like a big source of like learning for me because I get to be in that role of like, uh, like, uh, kind of founder or like somebody who focuses on the product and not just the code, just to counterbalance that pure focus on the code as a developer in a large enterprise, right? So basically it's a tool which allows you to get an overview and manage like a large polyrepo environment. So even though I prefer monorepos and I love Enix and everything, not every organization is willing or has a capacity or has a know-how to go to that direction. And they will have polyrepo environments with hundreds of uh, repos and projects for foreseeable future. And then it turned out that there is this kind of need to help manage that. So I tried to kind of solve my own problem when I was at that customer where I need to perform some kind of migrations, like first to understand who is using what or which version or how did we spread this feature across all those applications or who is using this deprecated uh, service or deprecated component from the shared library, can we already like delete it or is still somebody using it and stuff like that, right? So, and this kind of brought me to the idea to create 
this uh, product called Omniboard, which basically allows you to do that. So whenever you have some kind of question, which versions are used, who is using this component, who is having this property with that value in this custom enterprise cloud YAML, whatever it is, you can define it as a check, which can be like regex or xpath or JSONPath based. And then you have this CLI tool, which you run on the part of the CI pipeline, which will download those checks, execute them against your source, and only upload like the small metadata, which describes the results. So like, yes, no, or which version or which method, which imports stuff like that. So first of all, it's not uploading all your sources, which is a no-go for many organizations, right? And then you have it, and then you can explore these results in the app itself, where you have like multiple views. So like you can see like all the results per project, or then like you can see like which projects uh, fulfill or unfulfill some specific check with which kind of values. And of course, you can also create a more persistent result views in the form of custom dashboards, which then allow you to track that kind of stuff. So for example, you can create a dashboard for like the best practices of the NGRX in your organization where you're like, okay, who is still typing the generic type of the store? You shouldn't do that because you get the type inference from the selector. You should only always use selectors and the store directly, right? So this kind of stuff, or when we are like, for example, rolling out a skeleton header to all those consumer apps, like, okay, who is already using it? Who is not using it? So and then you can kind of ping those people like, okay, please do that. And compared to something like uh, Linter, uh, the difference is that they don't have to do anything, right? So once this runs, uh, you can just ad hoc uh, generate those questions, those checks, and you will get your results. It's not like then you would first have to ping them, please get this latest Linter rule, right? So as this kind of person who is in control or should manage that environment, you can do it on your own and you are not blocked by the processes and stuff like that. So from that, it can be very useful. So that's omniboard.dev. And if you want to see it in action now, there is this new live demo, which uh, tries to demonstrate how this works in the landscape of the Angular open source libraries. So it's just you can get in with a single click. You don't have to even register. And you will see that, of course, those libraries, they are not only really using themselves. So it's a bit artificial example, but it should give you an idea of what is possible, what kind of results you can get, how this works, how you can attach additional metadata to those product lists with tags, pretty cool stuff. We track their stuff like the best practices, RHS, the IV testing, modern Angular APIs like signals and standalone components and destroy reference who is using this already. So check it out. Now I want to move on to the non-technical part. So what kind of person is Thomas and uh, how do you see yourself? Right. So that's always a bit hard, I would say, like, because it's, you know, life is long and stuff happens. But uh, so I would say like, which, like, like, like uh, the huge impact on like my overall development and personality was that like I'm originally from like Eastern Europe. And I was growing up at that special time when like the communism was ending. So I think that kind of like affected me in various ways. And especially because I kind of emigrated to Switzerland and later when I was adult. So I think that kind of shaped how I perceive the world and how I see things. But um, I mean, 
yeah, it's kind of like, I think it makes me appreciate things a lot and not to take stuff for granted and really try to work hard to like make stuff happen because there is a possibility to actually do it. Something, something like that. I don't know if that makes sense for the people who listen to it, but for me, that's kind of like a cornerstone of who I am. Do you have some hints for us regarding self-organization? Do I actually have like for, and again, everybody's different. So I know this is not universally applicable. So please take it with a grain of salt. But for me, the biggest difference was to get a whiteboard. And, you know, I even had it like, initially I had it like in the living room because I had like only one room. So, <laughs> so it had to be there, but now I have it like just next to my computer. And basically whenever I get any kind of idea of what I could do or how I could improve something, let's say in that product, which I'm building called Omniboard or whatever it is, or for like an article or whatever it is, I just write it down on that whiteboard. And maybe then, you know, later I propagate it to like some to-do lists or like some, I just use like some Google Drive basic like documents, like I don't really have any tool for that. But it's like, at least for me, what really works is whenever I get this idea, whatever it is, I have to write it down either on whiteboard where I have like a sticky note on the, on the, on the phone. And then I propagate it on whiteboard and then I maybe propagate it somewhere else. Because the thing is, else I would forget about it in next three minutes. And another thing is like, I don't do all of those, not a chance. But if I do at least like 10% of those, that's already so much more as not having that. So I can wholeheartedly recommend something like that. But again, I fully want to acknowledge everybody's different. Maybe somebody's organized like a whiteboard, please. Like, <laughs> sure, <laughs> that's completely fine. And another big one, as you said, like I do quite some stuff and then it kind of proved to be a problem with all the accounts you have all around the internet and for like this initiative and that initiative for me, like the huge, huge game changer was to start using a password manager. So, and I only started like last year, so it's extremely late. And I mean, that's just like, it's, it streamlines all the stuff so much. And it even can do stuff like generate SSH keys, you know, as software developers, right? We want to have like SSH keys access to like GitHub or GitLab or whatever have you. And it's all there and I just can search for it and it will just integrate. So I'm, I'm a huge fan for me. That was like a huge quality of life improvement for like many of the activities because I work with computers a lot. Right. So, and I mean, nowadays, even if it's banking, even if it's like, you know, organizing meetup or whatever it is, making a podcast with various platforms, you have to log into stuff. And then the more activities you do, the more you have. And then if you have the same password for everything, that's also maybe not the best idea to have exactly the same password for everything. So that's another one which I really love. And maybe most people like, yeah, we already use it since 30 years. Well, I was late, but better late than never. Uh, what about your work-life balance? Yeah, that's uh, also one which is a bit tricky. So... I would say like, of course, very important, right? It's like the burnout is the real thing. I don't think I ever had like a 
proper burnout, but I was, I think I was getting like to like a place where I could see the burnout in a not so far distance. Uh, and of course, also like with age, like I definitely noticed that I have less energy now than like five, six, seven years ago. That's just like the fact of life. So I would say like now I pay much more attention to that and I, you know, try to do like a regular exercise and like strength training and like stretching and this kind of stuff just to like, you know, healthy body, healthy mind. For me, this works. But on the other hand, which maybe is not so like the most popular opinion, I would say that uh, when I was like younger and I had energy, I might have pushed it couple like from time to time without any like permanent damage and I would say I benefit from it now that like I created all these things like blog posts and stuff which maybe I would not be able to do with such a frequency nowadays so at the end of the day it's everybody's life and choice and it's definitely important to not burn yourself out but it's also a fact of life that the energy levels change as we age. So maybe it also makes sense to use them while they are there. I would say something like that. My last question for today, uh, a book you would recommend to our listeners. It can be uh, technical or non-technical. Yeah. So it depends on the topic. I have to like admit I... In the past, I read much more. Now it's more like audiobooks because it's just more convenient. And I know it's not like the same. And then I also like my retention of the facts or like information from the book like drops dramatically. But uh, the last book I read, actually, no, I listened to it. I, I got it in paper, but it did. I listened to it. I, I tried to read it. Was the Parasitic Mind by God Salt, which was very interesting, like especially with nowadays like world of the social media and like how it shapes our perception. So I could recommend that. And then besides that, I'm also a bit like into like healthy lifestyle and just especially like looking forward into future. And that you know, like everybody's aware of the AI and this huge boom. I think there is also a huge boom going on in terms of like handling of the human aging. And one of the like key people on the forefront of that is like David Sinclair. And that I would recommend like his book, Lifespan, which discusses many of these things of why and how we age and how it might change in the future and stuff like lifespan, health span. This I really enjoyed. I'm incredibly grateful for your presence on my podcast today, your insights, and experiences have truly enriched our conversation and I appreciate the time you've taken to join us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Darius, for having me. It was a pleasure. Really enjoyed talking to you. And yeah, please, everybody, check out also the other episodes. And until next time. <laughs> <laughs>